This podcast is intended for a mature audience over 19 years of age and is provided on an educational and informational basis. Any material presented is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for professional medical advice or as an endorsement or medical claim by Patterson Media, Everything Podcasts, or any advertiser. You've been in jail. From marijuana, yeah, into Japan. There was some marijuana in the suitcase, and I ended up, yeah, I ended up in jail. The guard says to me, so-and-so wants to know what you're in for. I said, oh, marijuana, you know. I said, what did he say? He says, seven years hard labor. Over 4,300 people were apprehended in marijuana-related cases nationwide. About 60% of them were under 20 years old. The youngest arrested last year was a 14-year-old male junior high school student. Today, we're going to a place with some of the strictest cannabis laws in the world. In Japan, you can be thrown into prison for five years for possession. That's even on a first offense. But cannabis, even now, holds a surprising spiritual position there. At least until the end of World War II, Japanese people believed that our emperor was the direct descendant of these gods in Shinto. So the royal family and Shinto are like one. And the cannabis for the emperor was always a part of the institution. I'm Don Schaefer, and that's coming up in the Canadian podcast. We're also heading somewhere with slightly more liberal drug laws. Our producer, Karen Habashi, is reporting from the Lyft Expo 2023 in Vancouver. Everywhere around the Expo, you'd find bowls of chips, sweets, candy, and munchies, because if you know, you know. But before all that, we go to our Toronto bureau for the latest pot news with Jay Coburn. Health Canada has intervened over edibles being incorrectly labelled as extracts. The regulator asked some producers to stop selling the products, but did not ask for a recall. An extract can legally have 100 times more THC per package than a product classified as an edible. Those THC limits, however, may be revised as part of the Cannabis Act review in the near future. In Alberta, a tribunal has ruled that grower SNDL interfered with an off-site meeting for workers interested in unionizing. SNDL, formerly known as Sundial, now has to offer workers paid, mandatory meetings with the union. And a federal court has ruled that the locations of large medical cannabis growers can't be disclosed. The case was taken to court by the Federal Information Commissioner on behalf of a Globe and Mail reporter. That reporter had requested the addresses from Health Canada, but was denied on the basis that it could lead to breaches in patient confidentiality. That's the Pot News. I'm Jay Coburn. Back to you, Don. Very excited. We're finally here. Cannabis is big business, and with business comes trade shows. The Lyft Cannabis Business Conference is, in their words, the original large-scale cannabis trade show in Canada. The first was in 2016, years before recreational cannabis was legalized here. Now they're in the U.S. as well. And this year, there are three Lyft Expos, Toronto and San Francisco, later in the year, and in Vancouver, which is where our producer Karen Habashi went. 
I was stunned by everything. The demos, the workshops, the people, the noises, the images, the smells. Oh my God, so many smells. There was one brand that has CBD drops that you can use in your food or drinks. One day they were adding it to chicken and waffles. Next day it was popcorn with different flavors and other smells, of course. And also everywhere around the expo, you'd find bowls of chips, sweets, candy and munchies. Because if you know, you know. It sort of broadened my mind with many questions as a woman coming from Egypt where cannabis is very, very stigmatized, taboo, very illegal. So coming here and listening to all those experts in their fields, it made me feel like how important it is to have trusted educational place for people because there's lots of stigma still surrounding it. It's so good to have the world come to BC. The show is such a great way to be able to interact with people, not only across Canada, but there's people from all over here. Karen managed to grab some time with two of the organizers. Carrie Hershew is Director of Growth for Lyft Expo in North America, and Lisa Petty is their Marketing Director. We're back in Vancouver for the first time in three years. It was hard to be away from Vancouver for so long during the pandemic, so we're really pleased to be back and it's going to be an amazing show. We're finally here. Is Lyft Expo something that is beneficial only for people who grow or sell cannabis or is it also beneficial for everyday folks who might be interested in cannabis or who use cannabis? One of the things that we are most proud of that really is at the heart of what we do is creating an event where we pay attention to all these different aspects in order that we can add value for every segment of our audience. So Consumer Day is for enthusiasts, patients, anyone who just loves and respects the plant. And what we're doing is we're making sure that there's a lot for them to do, a lot of cool demonstrations for them to check out. Like we've got glass blowing, we've got a joint rolling tutorial. So it's not just for the business. Some of the sessions I attended are really interesting, especially with Team Canada. Do you want to send some messages about someone who just listens to one side of the story, like, oh, cannabis is bad? It becomes a very polarizing conversation, and it doesn't need to be. There's a lot of stigma that needs to be removed. And it's not a bad thing. It's just people are naturally resistant to changing with the times and knowing that generally when you think about something that's regulated, you think about, oh, people are controlling us. And then they point to the government. And that's just not the case. But things move slowly. Things take time to progress. And the only way that positive change can happen is that everyone's patient and does their job. And what Canada's doing and Smitherman, it's all lobbying for this positive change to happen so that when our kids grow up, they can have it better than how we had it. I'm not saying we have it bad because we don't. It's just that the progress comes in generations, not in years. But you don't go to a cannabis expo just to talk to the organizers. Lyft is nothing without the people and businesses attending. So Karen got chatting. And this is Ashley Trevisani. I'm a business development manager at Labstat. I grow the business for our lab based in Edmonton and Kitchener, and we're a third-party analytical tester that has a cannabis analytical license to test the contaminants and to test the potency of cannabis products. So pesticides is one of them that's required by Health Canada. We call it a full panel of the requirements from Health Canada, which would include uh, your microbials, your pesticides, aflatoxins, 
heavy metals, residual solvents. If there's anything extra that goes beyond that, we might be able to test it, but producers usually just stick with what's required by Health Canada. That's all we do. There's limitations that are set by Health Canada and there's different standards that you can follow or different methods for each analysis, either USP, which is the American Pharmacopoeia, or EU, which is the European Pharmacopoeia. And depending on which method the customer wants, will determine a different specification of what the results would fall under. The most booths, the most people, the best time. I came to check out all the different vendors and see what's out there in the industry across Canada. We are here with Guggen Graywall of Mindset Beverages. We are a CBD-infused kombucha, and I think we're the only one on the market, and we focus on CBD-only beverages. And why mindset? I think we're all looking for ways to improve ourselves in some way, and we're starting to focus a little bit more on what makes us feel good overall. And I think there's two things that are a part of that. One is like our mind and the other is our body. And I think our mindset really kind of contributes to success in, in that overall, really. We we're doing some really great work with some amazing charities and foundations in town where we're doing some really cool stuff with Pacific Autism Family Network, the Kids Up Front charity. We're doing some really neat studies with Langara College, La Cité in Ontario, Science World even. So yeah, I think we're trying to give back as much as we can. I'm here with Plan Check with Chelsea Vineson. And Sean Vineson. Plan Check is from Victoria, BC. We do all of our manufacturing on the island and we ship all over the world. Every kit has three tests and each test is going to give you a result for your THC with plus or minus 10% of your final reading. So if you get a reading of 10%, that's going to be plus or minus the 10% of the final number. So 10% you would be an accuracy of between 9 and 11%. So if you had a reading of 20%, then it's going to be plus or minus 2 percentage points. So that's going to be between 18 and 22%. This is started by Josh Eads and Philippe Lucas. They're both PhDs. Josh Eads is a microbiologist, so he was the originator of this kit. We work on the fulfillment side of it. We put the kits together and ship them worldwide for the company. Every single time we come here, it keeps on growing and growing. People are asking really informed questions and seem to be really engaged. We're here with Stacy from All Nations. Tell me more about All Nations. Yeah, All Nations is an indigenous cannabis company. We are the first farm game model in Lower Mainland, the second in BC, I believe. We have a cultivation facility that's Health Canada licensed on the traditional territory of Shuai Village First Nation. We also have a licensed retail location as well that is literally across the roadway from the cultivation facility. So our farm game model is in full swing. We also have a consultancy arm that really focuses on the impact of cannabis and indigenous participation in the cannabis space. And we help other nations across Canada replicate and step into the space so that, that they're also able to fulfill economic growth and development on their First Nation communities as well. And so that's kind of in a nutshell what we do as All Nations. One thing I should add is if you're a retailer 
and you're looking at supporting indigenous participation, there's a few of us in the market that are indigenous producers that have product out to market. And the more you educate on indigenous participation and why it's important and why it's important to support them, both as a consumer and a retailer, you start to really push that movement forward just by putting us on your shelves or just by putting an indigenous producer on your shelf. So if it's not something that you've thought about before walking into a retail store about where your product comes from, it's something that you should probably start thinking about and looking at supporting the ones that you really are behind their mission and their values. And let's stop feeding the big corpse the big governments that are really profiting off of this and support someone's Thanksgiving dinner this year and support their retail and support their brand because they're really the heart of the industry in a lot of ways and the more we break these barriers the more the industry is going to continue to thrive. Here's for a year for all nations to grow global. Yes, we're going global folks. That was Canadian podcast producer Karen Habashi at the 2023 Lyft Cannabis Business Expo in Vancouver. Next, we're leaving Canada. So, let's go to Japan. The number of people arrested in Japan for cannabis-related incidents hit a record high in 2019. The National Police Agency said on Thursday that over 4,300 people were apprehended in marijuana-related cases nationwide. The record number of incidents rose for a third straight year. The island nation has some of the strictest cannabis laws on Earth. If you get caught with cannabis, you could end up in jail for five years. That's even for a first offense. Zero tolerance. But then there's a contradiction deep in Japan's heart. A clash between modern politics and religious tradition. In Japan, cannabis is taboo. If you mention smoking a joint to someone at work, you'd lose your job and be ostracized. But also in Japan, cannabis is a core part of the dominant national religion. My name is Naoko Miki. I'm a co-founder of a group called Greens on Japan. Naoko is a medicinal cannabis advocate in Japan, but she also spends a lot of time in Seattle because her husband is American. So she's here to help us explain this twisted knot that is Japanese cannabis culture. Japan's new emperor, Naruhito, approaching the throne, aware of the history upon which he treads. Evening, Friday, November 14th, 2019 six months after Emperor Naruhito ascended to the throne. This is only the third time in a hundred years a new emperor has taken the chrysanthemum throne. In a specially constructed building, there's no electric light. Torches flicker as the Emperor Naruhito and the Empress Masako are led slowly, deliberately, into the sparse wooden structure. They're wearing oversized traditional robes with sharp folds. The robes are white, showing purity. The procession descends into the dedicated structure where it's said the emperor has an audience with the goddess. He and the empress will spend the night there. With them, they have offerings from across Japan. Exactly what happens inside the building is a secret. 
This is Daijosai, a ritual that's performed once per imperial reign, always in the November following a new emperor's ascension. It's also known as the Great Thanksgiving and is considered the most important ritual the new emperor will perform after his enthronement. For that, they need fiber clothes. It's like a offering of two sets of rolls of cloth. One is silk and the other is hemp. Shinto is the dominant religion in Japan. Shinto priests wear white robes made of hemp fiber from cannabis plants. In Shinto, hemp is a sacred plant which symbolizes purity. Hemp is necessary for this ritual, and the emperor occupies a sacred place too. At least until the end of World War II, Japanese people believed that our emperor was the direct descendant of these gods in Shinto. So the royal family and Shinto are like one, and the cannabis for the emperor was always a part of the institution. Hemp isn't just used in once-in-a-generation imperial rituals. Over two-thirds of Japanese people participate in Shinto practices. Nearly every Japanese town and village has a Shinto shrine. So if you go to any Japanese shrine, there is a rope. It's twisted and made into a thick, big rope that hangs in the front of the main building, which is to ward off evil spirit and make the ground sacred. That's called Shimenawa, and every shrine has it. And also there's a big bell that people ring to make a wish for the gods that this particular shrine is enthroning. And the rope that you use to hit the bell is also made from hemp. And the Shinto priests use various tools to purify people and give blessing, that's also made from hemp. Hemp is everywhere in Shinto practices, but cannabis, which hemp is made from, is banned. It's almost like when it comes to cannabis, there are two Japans. First, the pre-war Japan, which has thousands of years of agriculture. Cannabis fiber and seeds were found in the remains of the residents from Jomon period, which was from 10,000 BC to 300 AD. So we believe that Japanese people was familiar with the plant and that our history goes back that far. And all through our history until up to 1948, it was part of our life. And all of a sudden it was cut off. In this Japan, cannabis was a huge part of the agricultural sector. It was the second most farmed crop after rice. It was everywhere. The plant is even mentioned in Japan's oldest collection of poetry. Verses in the Monyashu depict ninja jumping over cannabis plants for their training. The plants grow so fast that it gets more challenging every day. The picture that emerges is one of an island nation coated in green cannabis plants and rice paddies, making use of plants that grow well in hot humid summers and bitterly cold winters. Hemp clothing was common among elites and commoners alike. Some historians have even speculated that while the rice wine sake was monopolized by upper classes, cannabis was how the working class relaxed. After all, it was everywhere. But then there's the other Japan, the Japan that emerged after the Second World War. We are gathered here, representatives of the major warring powers, to conclude a solemn agreement whereby 
peace may be restored. The Japanese surrender in 1945 was about more than just losing the war. It led to fundamental cultural changes. The country was occupied by the USA, and in 1947, the Allies essentially dictated a new Japanese constitution. The emperor was demoted from all-powerful ruler to ceremonial figurehead. As part of that, the emperor declared to the public that he was, in fact, a mere mortal. New laws were enacted with American values, and in 1948, Japan passed the Cannabis Control Act. The Cannabis Control Act is a very strange law. It prohibits certain parts of the plant, the flower and leaves, but not mature stalk and seeds. So hemp growing continued, but now Japanese hemp farmers needed a license. In 1954, there were 37,700 hemp farmers. So that was the peak of the recorded number. We don't know if there were more before this license system started. But in the mid-50s, there were over 37,000 farmers. The newest number is less than 30. So it's continuing. It's just that it became so difficult to get this official license, it became nearly impossible. The reason why the United States wanted Japan to ban cannabis is a little murky. Some people argue it was moralistic. Some say it was to undermine the economy and therefore any future war effort. Others say it was due to lobbying from the American fabric industry who wanted to open the Japanese market to nylon. I think it was more about an economy, but who knows? I once tried to find a public document that documents the process of that negotiation, you know, what Americans actually told us and what we told them, and we couldn't find any. Today, the dichotomy remains where cannabis is banned, but sacred in Japan. Our producer, Jay Coburn, asked Naoko Miki how the Japanese public reconciles those two positions. I don't think many people are confronted with that question, so they will probably get very confused if you ask them that. Not many people know this association between hemp and Shinto. There are many different camps of cannabis legalization activism, and one camp focuses on our spiritual or religious connection with cannabis or hemp. And they try to remind people that this is what Shinto has with cannabis, and therefore it's a sacred thing and it's not evil, and let's bring it back because it's in our history and it's in our culture. But what people think is evil is the high that it produces. So the usage of fiber in Shinto is one thing, and smoking it and getting high is a totally different thing. And it might come from the same plant, but it's a two completely different activities. With that in mind, are Japanese people, and I'm asking you to make like broad generalizations here, but culturally in Japan, is the idea of being intoxicated a bad thing? Do people drink more or less? Well, for me, it's the biggest puzzle. Because Japan is a very, very tolerant country toward alcohol. There are beer vending machines everywhere. Kids can buy it. You see the commuting business person get so drunk and totally asleep on the platform of train stations or vomit on the street. 
and they say things that they don't remember the next day. That is everywhere, and people accept it. So if you think what cannabis does to you is bad, think about alcohol. What's the difference? Naoko says that cannabis, the drug, is so outside the mainstream that it isn't even depicted in Japanese media. Not even a deadbeat pot-smoking delinquent or a PSA about the evils of smoking the devil's lettuce. Japan may be a relatively monocultural island with strict immigration laws, but no country is immune to external influence. There's a small legalization movement which Naoko Miki is part of. It is a small niche. I mean, if you're involved in this, it's possible to know everyone. <laughs> small, but perhaps mighty. The Japanese government is currently reviewing the Cannabis Control Act, and recommendations have been made. Among them, legalizing medical cannabis. That's one step forward. Also recommended, harsher penalties for recreational cannabis. One step back. Naoko Miki has mixed feelings about the future of cannabis in Japan. I am hopeful that the hemp-derived CBD products will remain. Sometimes when CBD is approved as drugs, that translates to other CBD not being allowed on the market. But there is a way to avoid that. So we're hoping that they will coexist. Regarding recreational, I think it's going to be a while that if ever, will be allowed. On the next podcast, we're focusing on our neighbors to the south, the USA. We'll tell the story of how cannabis came to be banned in the U.S. and explore the patchwork of state-level cannabis laws. Check back in a month. I hope you can join us for the next episode of the Canadian Podcast. Hit the subscribe or follow button to make sure you do. And while you wait for the next episode, go to westernbuzz.ca. The Canadian Podcast is an everything podcast production in partnership with Patterson Media. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the podcast team or our partners. This show is intended for a 19-plus audience. Thanks to our team, creative director Cliff Dumas, showrunner Karen Habashi, senior writer Jay Coburn, and our sound engineer is John Massacar. I'm Don Schaefer. Thanks for listening to Podcast, the authority on cannabis in Canada.